Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions Podcast. A great flood is coming. We build a vessel to survive the storm. We build an ark. Russell Crowe doesn't need to say any more than a handful of words, and already most of us know what he's talking about. It's the story of Noah's Ark, the flood that destroys everything and the one family that survives. And that was a clip from the 2014 movie simply called Noah, a strange and rather messy epic. And I think it's fair to say everyone agrees the original book is better. It's one of the most famous and controversial stories in the Bible, of course. In some ways, the biblical story of Noah and his ark has been the focus over centuries for debates about the trustworthiness of the Bible. The account has captured the imagination of archaeologists and historians and theologians, some of whom have spent a lot of years trying to find evidence for a worldwide flood or a giant wooden boat with no luck. Then there are the discoveries of modern science, as well as an explosion in new knowledge about the ancient world of the Bible. And these have challenged whether a concrete reading of the story is plausible. But if it's not straightforward history, what on earth is it? And what does that say about the Bible itself? I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan's new book, Global Christianity, 
a guide to the world's largest religion from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe by Gina Zerlo. Each episode at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. And if this one hour of undeceiving isn't enough for you, join the Undeceptions Plus community for just $5 Aussie a month. You'll get extended interviews with my guests, bonus episodes, exclusive Facebook Live events with me and the team, and tons of other extras. Just go to undeceptions.com forward slash plus. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course, or even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions, zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. John, can you um, give us a quick rundown of the story of uh, the the flood in in Genesis, picking out what you see as the key narrative elements, because not everyone of my listeners will even know the story. Right. Well, as as you might expect, the story of a flood involves a event of nature, a catastrophe. And in this particular story of the flood, there is the instruction to one particular man to build a boat, to collect animals, and that he'll be saved while the rest of the world will not be. Um, that's the, the basic story. Um, and so Noah and his family... That's John Walton, one of the best-known Old Testament scholars in the world. He's professor of Old Testament in the graduate school at Wheaton College, Illinois. He's the author or senior editor of more than 30 books, mainly focused on the Old Testament in its ancient Near Eastern context. The book relevant for today's episode is the one he wrote with another Old Testament scholar and theologian, Tremper Longman. Hi, Tremper, if you're listening. It's called The Lost World of the Flood, Mythology, Theology and the Deluge Debate. 
And so Noah and his family and some animals are spared this catastrophe, and they come off the boat once the earth dries out, and he offers a sacrifice of thanks. But really part of the story, and perhaps the most important part of it, is the setting. That is, it's in a setting of corruption and violence among humankind. And uh, the catastrophe is destruction of that known world. Uh, it's not presented as a piece of, of punishment, um, it's, although it's often interpreted that way. But it's rather presented as a restoration of order. So that's part of the uh, the kind of narrative plot as well that's really important beyond the details of the the hero and the boat and the animals and the flood. The story of Noah and his ark is in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. You can just turn to chapters 6 through 9. If you've never read the opening pages of Genesis, here's a quick rundown of what happens before Noah arrives on the scene. God makes the universe, of course, as well as Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though they're told not to. And God throws them out of the Garden of Eden into an unruly world. The next few chapters show the ripple effects of human disobedience. And we read more stories of human rebellion and fractured relationships. It's the story of humans moving east of Eden, both narratively and figuratively. There's the story of Cain and Abel, for example, where Cain, in a jealous rage, murders his brother Abel. Humans then continue the violence on a grander scale, building kingdoms full of corruption. And that's where the Noah story begins, in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So God decided to start over, saving only a few. Now, John Walton's point about the destruction of humanity not being a punishment, but rather a restoration of order, may sound strange to our ears. I mean, it certainly looks like punishment. Just about everyone dies. Now, in his book, Walton concedes that punishment is the traditional interpretation, but he sees things a little differently, and in a way that isn't necessarily mutually exclusive. And I think his reading makes a lot of sense. Genesis opens with a watery chaos in the first lines, out of which God brings the order of creation. And then this same theme weaves its way through the first portion of the book of Genesis. First the non-order in the world, then the order that God brings to the world. Then there's human disorder, followed by a reordering and renewal. The flood is about God re-establishing order. It is, in a sense, forward-looking. Seeing the flood simply as punishment only looks backwards. But forward-looking is also important, especially important in Genesis. It sets things up for the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, frankly, where we learn how God intends to re-establish order. It turns out it's through God choosing one family, Abraham's family, and using them to bless the entire world. 
We'll get to that later in the episode. My point is, there's this repeated motif in the book of Genesis. Non-order, followed by order, then disorder, then order. And it comes up a lot in my chat with Professor Walton. Once cuneiform was deciphered, lots of unexpected things came to light, but probably none which had greater impact than the discovery by George Smith in 1872 of the 11th tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh, in which he encountered for the first time the flood story. Finding an ancient tablet with the story of Noah's Ark written hundreds of years before the Bible shattered the Victorians' understanding of the world. When it arrived, it was a huge bang thing like that. It was a very explosive matter. And the parallel was much more than a sort of general similarity with a boat and water and animals. It was in the same order, and there were many close points that compellingly showed that this same story had been current in Mesopotamia a millennium before the earliest date when the Hebrew text is likely to have come into existence. That's a clip from a BBC Ideas 2021 special in the UK looking at four ancient secrets revealed by deciphered cuneiform tablets. Cuneiform, by the way, is one of the oldest known forms of writing. It means wedge-shaped, from the Latin cuneus, or wedge. People wrote cuneiform using a reed stylus cut to make a wedge-shaped mark on a clay tablet. Just Google it and you'll see what I mean. It's little wedges in different angles that mean words. Anyway, in the BBC tape, Irving Finkel, an Assyriologist from the British Museum, tells us about the museum's single most famous cuneiform text, the 11th tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh. In 1872, British Museum assistant George Smith announced an amazing discovery. He had deciphered the story of a flood written on a cuneiform tablet that had been recently excavated at Nineveh in present-day Iraq. The news was electrifying. Those present at Smith's announcement to a meeting of the Society of Biblical Archaeology in London included the then Archbishop of Canterbury and the UK Prime Minister. It was a big deal. As Irving Finkel points out in his own book, The Ark Before Noah, decoding the story of the flood, almost everyone in 19th century England knew their Bible backwards. The suggestion that the iconic story of Noah's Ark was not an original, but a cover, was, as Finkel put it, indigestible. More recently, Finkel himself was able to decipher another cuneiform tablet dating from a similar time. The symbols read as a virtual instruction manual for building an ark and include a recounting of animals two by two on the ark. The tablet fragment itself is only the size of a mobile phone, but it contains details that make this Epic of Gilgamesh, as it's called, even more similar to the biblical account. Even though the clay tablet describes the ark as either circular or a cube, whereas the Bible makes the ark a giant oblong. 
The final form of the Epic of Gilgamesh probably dates to the late second millennium BC, so something like 12 or 1300 BC, which is about the same time as Moses, actually. But there are other flood stories from the ancient Near East that are likely much, much older than that. Can you tell us about the other great flood stories? Uh, maybe in turn, these are the stories from the surrounding cultures, the Eridu uh, Genesis, the Atrahasis, and uh, the Gilgamesh epic. Yes. Well, Eridu Genesis is is a little bit of a, um, an outlier. Um because there is not a single piece called the Eridu Genesis. Rather, it's a modern scholarly composite of several different traditions pasted together. Yeah, scholars are good at that. Yes. But in, in that, uh, one segment of that is an old Sumerian account of Ziusudra, a flood story. But in, in this, even this composite Eridu Genesis, uh, the flood is just a dozen lines. Uh, there's not really much to it, and it's got the basic elements of the boat, the hero, the flood. All the evil winds, all stormy winds, gathered into one, and with them then the flood was sweeping over the cities of the half-bushel baskets for seven days and seven nights. After the flood had swept over the country, after the evil wind had tossed the big boat about on the great waters, the sun came out, spreading light over heaven and earth. Do we know its general date? Well, we only know the date of some of the documents that lead to it, which is often the difficulty in the ancient world. Um, with Atrahasis, it's a little more um, extensive, and also the date is a little more identifiable. But again, here we're talking about maybe 1600 BC, uh, and but that's the date of the manuscript we have. Uh, how old those traditions are, we don't know. Uh, the Gilgamesh epic didn't find its final form until closer to the end of the second millennium. And uh, it's dependent on the Atrahasis epic. That is, it uses the flood account from that. Nevertheless, the Atrahasis epic and the Gilgamesh epic really have different perspectives, different understandings of the flood, different settings that they place it into. So even though they're literarily dependent, they have very different ways of thinking about the flood and seeing what its consequences are. These various flood stories also contain creation accounts. Typically, in this ancient Near Eastern setting, humans are created as an afterthought. In the hierarchy of the gods, the lesser gods end up getting fed up with all the work they have to do for the higher gods. So humans are created as a kind of slave creature to do the work the gods didn't want to do. The problem is, in the Atrahasis epic, humans breed like crazy. And as their populations grow, they become noisy and annoying. And the gods decide to wipe out humanity in a flood. But one of the gods... Enki doesn't like that plan and takes steps to prevent every human dying. He appears to the human Atrahasis in a dream and warns him, Listen to me. Read wall, pay attention to all my words. Flee the house, build a boat, forsake possessions and save life. Then there's the Gilgamesh epic. 
Gilgamesh is the king of the city of Uruk in southern Mesopotamia. He's immature and, frankly, not a great king. We'll put a link to the story in the show notes, but basically, Gilgamesh wants to know how to attain eternal life. And so he goes to the one man who is immortal, Uta Napishti. In this Gilgamesh epic, it's Utanapishti that is our flood hero, our Noah. He tells Gilgamesh of the backstory that led to his eternal existence. He'd been told by the god Ea that the gods were going to destroy everything. And so he was commanded by Ea to, quote, forsake possessions, seek life, build an ark and save life, which sounds pretty similar to the Atrahasis epic. Anyway, Utanapishti is also told to take aboard ship seed of all living things. He obeyed and saved himself and others from the ruin of the gods, and his reward was eternal life. Now, in his book, John Walton notes that perhaps the most remarkable similarity to the biblical account is at the end of the flood in the Gilgamesh epic. Utanapishti's ark came to rest on a mountain. And after seven days, he released three birds, a dove, which found no perch and so returned, a swallow, which likewise couldn't find a perch, and then a raven, which saw the waters receding, ate and didn't come back. Sounds familiar, right? Here's how the Bible ends the flood story. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth, so it returned to Noah in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. Genesis 8, 6-11. But the details of the story, Atrahasis, it sounds like the Noah story in some ways. Sure. Zeusudra in the Sumerian one is the flood hero. Atrahasis is the flood hero. And Utnapishtim in the Gugamesh epic is the flood hero. None of those are really their names. They are names that indicate their significance and their status, the one who brings life and the one who found wisdom and things like that. Um, So uh, again, the names have significance, but they're not really treated as historical people per se. They're part of this account traditions. Remember also that in the ancient world, most of tradition is being passed down orally. So it's a hearing-dominant world. And therefore, uh, the idea of documents circulating is is not the right way to think about how things happened. No. So, you know, the Atrahasis is 1600 BC, you say, or thereabouts. I mean, that, that predates Moses, um, clearly. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Um, and the oral tradition predates uh, sure. That by, by a long shot. Um, some Christians might say um, that Genesis must be the source of these stories. And then skeptics reply, no, no, no. The, the Bible is just copying. It's a copycat. What do you say to both that Christian, nervous Christian perhaps, and the grumpy skeptic? Well, both views, I think, are 
overly simplistic uh, because they assume the prominence and prevalence of written traditions being circulated and transmitted uh, culture to culture. And that's not what we find. Instead, the uh, each one, each of the accounts, whether it's the biblical one or Atrahasis, or uh, they're all drawing from an oral cultural river. These ideas are out there circulating, and each one draws that basic understanding of an event, which again everybody in the ancient world knew of such an event. Each one draws that event and then gives interpretation of it. And so in this is important. It doesn't phase Walton at all that there are other earlier sources that give a similar account to the story of the flood we read in the Bible. And that's got a lot to do with the way he reads the book of Genesis, which we'll get to soon. And so in that sense, it's not like we have a direct line of transmission of documents, of literary um, reflections from one culture to another. Uh, we know that even as early as the Judges period, the Israelites knew of the Gilgamesh epic because there's a fragment of it found at Megiddo from the Judges period. Uh, but still, that would connect more to the scribal schools and what the scribes are, they're learning their craft by copying documents. Uh, but still, what Israelites would have known of the flood came out of this, what I call the cultural river, this cultural river, as John Walton calls it, provided the ancient Near East with its shared assumptions. It's the water everyone swam in. Assumptions like the comprehensive and ubiquitous control of the gods, the role of kingship, um, divination, you know, seeing into the future, the centrality of a temple and the reality of the spirit world. All of these things informed the worldview or cultural river of the ancient Near East. Our cultural river today, obviously, is very different. It includes currents like human rights, capitalism, democracy, science, and so on. So then can you put your finger on the core narrative that um, that is shared? What are the core bits that you, you know, if you pick up the Gilgamesh epic and, and Genesis 6 to 9, you'll, you'll find? Right. And again, it's basically the elements that there's uh, some kind of uh, problem that the gods are perceiving. And then the flood as an action to resolve that problem. Um, and so the boat and the flood and someone who is spared. But there's differences because, for instance, in the Mesopotamian traditions, there is no intention of the gods to spare somebody. Uh, one of the gods kind of went his own way and tipped their hand, and that's why uh, someone was saved. Um, so even in that basic element, there's quite a bit of difference. Uh, that, I mean, that, that, that's in some ways, unless I'm overreading it, a bit of an insight into the pagan religion, the fickleness of the gods. Right. The gods may care for you, may not. You know, yeah. in, in those traditions, people had been created to meet the needs of the gods. Mm. And it somehow escaped the gods' notice that if they wiped out humanity, there'd be nobody left to meet their needs. And so after seven days of a flood, they're really, really hungry. <laughs> and, and so it turns out, wow, it was a good thing after all that somebody was spared to offer a sacrifice and feed them. Obviously a very different perspective than in the biblical account. 
Walton says that the Bible's account is less about revealing the narrative itself, which just seems to be a shared story in the ancient Near East, and more about how to interpret the meaning of this shared flood story. The biblical author is making some theological arguments, saying something specific about the Jewish currents in the great cultural river, rather than telling a straightforward history. So does that mean there was no flood? Not exactly. Stick with us. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades. And access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions. Thank you. There was a huge issue of what is this ark going to look like. The idea was, let's go back to what God tells Noah in the Bible. In Genesis, the dimensions of the ark are laid out 30 cubits high by 50 cubits wide by 300 cubits long. A cubit is roughly the dimension of your elbow to your forefinger. What is this? This is our ark. That's the director of the 2014 film Noah, Darren Aronofsky, and his production designer, Mark Friedberg. They're talking about how they built the set for this epic film. And that set included a 55-foot-tall, 85-foot-wide and 165-foot-long arc, roughly the same size as a 50-metre Olympic swimming pool. They then extended it digitally to bring it up to the Bible's 500-foot arc, which is the length of three Olympic pools. There have also been some much larger efforts to recreate the biblical arc in its true proportions. In Kentucky in the US, the well-known creationist Ken Ham has built a biblical-sized arc. It's a kind of educational theme park. I have friends involved and they may eventually convince me to visit. I think it'd be fun. I imagine our discussions about the Bible would also be fun. Then there's a full-scale arc replica in Hong Kong, which is also a hotel. I've been there. And then there's the half-sized one in the Netherlands that actually floats. These are all modern attempts to reimagine the biblical story. But alongside the imagination... There are sciencey questions to ask. 
So let's move to the science, which is you know everyone's second question, uh, if not the first. Um, given that geology doesn't really support a worldwide global flood, and biology and zoology don't really support the descent of all living things to just one family of each, um, is this one of those famous clashes where you've got to choose between Bible and science? Well, it's often perceived as that, uh, but to some extent that's based on an assumption that the biblical text is presenting sort of a scientific historical perspective, uh, which we have to be very careful with. Uh, and uh, to recognize that the biblical text does not intend to give a scientific description and therefore, to try to reconstruct a particular scientific description is highly interpretive mm. uh, rather than something that's simply inherent at a flat reading of the text. And so, in that sense, we have to recognize things like the rhetoric of hyperbole, um, that this is a rhetorical device that's demonstrably used other places in Scripture and uh, I think is available here as well. This is where I have to ask for the patience of any listeners who are young earth creationists listening out there in the world or maybe here in the studio with me, who see the flood narrative as a factual historical account. I've learned over the years that there are some very smart cookies who read the story that way, and they have answers to all of the scientific and literary and theological challenges. All I can say is I find myself persuaded by the approach of scholars like John Walton, Tremper Longman, and a host of other biblical and ancient Near Eastern experts. The text itself, they point out, was never intended to be read like, say, the historical narratives of the biblical kings or whatever. It's a different kind of literature entirely. Yeah, so you don't mean, you know, they were just telling a tall tale, no, you know, no. uh, exaggeration in the moral sense. Correct. It's, a, it's an actual literary device. Right. A literary device meant to get at something else. Mm. Uh, and so, therefore, not exactly a um, trying to inform the reader that, hey, there was a flood. Everybody reading this in the ancient world knew there was a flood. Mm. Um, and so, it's really more about God's reasons for the flood and what was going on with the flood. Um, it's like we might today say, well, everybody knows there was a Holocaust, but, but why? What was going on? Why would God allow it? And so the questions are very much God-oriented, not reconstruct this event-oriented. So how much of the Genesis flood story do you take to be real you know, real events, um, or, or is that not even possible given the literary theological overlay? Well, I don't want to say it's impossible, but likewise, it would be difficult to identify that core uh, because, again, it's couched in literary and theological rhetoric. Mm. And therefore, well, again, I accept there was a, a massive flood that was highly destructive and not everybody was killed. <laughs> Uh, and so the idea that they were spared in a boat, that they saved some animals, I, I consider that a core of reality. Plenty of effort has gone into finding evidence of a worldwide flood to no avail. 
Yet in 1996, two marine geologists from Columbia University advanced a theory that does fit with the science. A flood of water from the Mediterranean, with the force of 20 Niagara Falls, rushed through the narrow natural strait, now called the Bosporus, in northwestern Turkey, and entered into the Black Sea some 7,600 years ago. The Black Sea rose and inundated the surrounding plains, becoming roughly what it is today. These geologists said that this cataclysmic event could have inspired the Babylonian flood stories, like the Epic of Gilgamesh a few thousand years later, and the biblical story in the centuries after that. Now, that's not exactly what John Walton or his co-author Tremper Longman say in their book on the topic. But they do reckon it's the sort of prehistorical event that might have inspired all of the ancient Near Eastern flood stories. And the Bible's version, they believe, is a kind of theological riff on this universal oral tradition. I feel really comfortable with this approach to the early chapters of Genesis because it's clear that the material in Genesis chapters 1 to 11 has the ring of theologizing about universal history rather than recounting known events in the history of Israel. That seems to kick in around chapter 12 of Genesis and the story of Abraham. Professors Walton and Longman and tons of others see the early chapters of Genesis as theological history. There are real events being referred to, the creation of the world, the fall of humanity, and a devastating flood, but the events are told in a highly figurative manner to make theological points about humanity, the world, and the course of history. And actually, a similar point is made about the final chapters of the Bible in the book of Revelation. There, the author uses highly figurative elements to speak not about prehistory, but about the climax of history. For example, all Christians believe Jesus will return to judge the world. That's going to be a real event in the world. But few Christians think Jesus is actually going to come back riding on a glorious white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, as Revelation chapter 19 describes it. These are figurative elements to make a theological point about Jesus being victorious, simply with a word from his mouth. Anyway, sorry, we've strayed a bit from Genesis. But too often, I think, when we read the Bible, we think too much about what would the videotape have shown? You know, um, what would it be like to be there in reality? And to some extent, that's because we have adopted the view that reality equals what a videotape could show. <laughs> which I think is a flawed and, and faulty view, and certainly not the way that ancient literature is working. Uh, so to that extent, you know, I think there are real events at the core, uh, but the, the focus of the text is not the event. It's what this well-known event was all about. Yeah, I want to get to that. What, what are the clues in the text of Genesis 6 to 9 that this is not intended as straightforward history, that, that there's a higher level of meaning the author wants to draw you into. Yeah. I think that comes in the very nature of the presentation, although that gets a little more difficult to spot if you're not familiar with how literature 
ancient literature works and the conventions they used and the rhetorical devices they used. This is why we give people like you a job. Well, and that's that's what we try to bring out for people to see. You know, when we see the obvious parallels between the flood story and the creation story, when we see the obvious parallels uh, to the flood story and uh, accounts of the exile, uh, we can start to see the patterning, the literary patterning that is taking place. Yes, people often overlook the the way this fits into Genesis 1 to 11. Um, can you talk about the pattern in Genesis 1 to 11 that then reemerges in the flood story? Uh, as I read Genesis 1 through 11, and of course, lots of people read it in different ways, but as I read it, the main concern is God's establishment of order, which begins with creation in Genesis 1, and how humans worked to center themselves in that order spectrum, instead of um, working alongside of God in his plans and purposes for order, and he created them in his image to do that, to work alongside him. Instead, they decided, we're going to go into business on our own. We're going to do it our way. We're going to make it benefit us. And uh, so that, that's how I, under, how I understand Genesis 3. Um, so wisdom is the pathway to order. They take from the wisdom tree so that they can launch on their own and do their own order thing instead of God's order thing. And so in that sense, Genesis 1 through 11 is moving through a whole sequence that's eventually going to lead to the covenant in Genesis 12, where God relaunches how he is going to establish order in the world through the covenant. So the Genesis chapter 12, by the way, is where we meet Abraham, who's a kind of new Adam. And God promises a return to order in this covenant that Walton is talking about. Abraham is the historical key to blessing on the world, which is the reversal of the chaos and curse that has marked the universal prehistory. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the flood narrative stands in the middle of this Genesis 1 through 11 section to give the primary evidence of what happens when people take order on themselves. It doesn't lead to order. It leads to corruption. It leads to violence. And it leads to destruction. People just can't do it on their own. Sure, they can build cities, Genesis 4. You know, Sure, they can engage in the arts of civilization, music, and domestication of animals, and bronze working, Genesis 4. Sure, you can make some progress. But in the end... You really can't bring order. You can bring civilization, but order is bigger than civilization. Yeah, because order in the biblical concept, you know, is well. You're going to correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> it's humans participating in the wisdom of God. You know, the wisdom of God is imprinted in creation, and so looking to Him for wisdom is looking to Him to participate in his mind in the creation. Correct. To participate in his mind with his plans and purposes in mind. We're not driving our own car and having God as the passenger. 
we are leaving our driving behind and we're joining the train of God's plans and purposes where he's the conductor and the engineer. And you see this in the next story after the um, flood story, right? The Babel, Tower sure. of Babel. Right. And here's the story of the Tower of Babel from Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Because there again, they're trying to establish order for themselves, making a name for themselves uh, through their own efforts. Uh, again, the tower is not for people to go up, it's for God to come down. And they want to bring God down to live among them, to worship him, but for their own benefits, mm. so that their name might be great. And of course, sacred space, presence of God, should be to make his name great. The Tower of Babel story there in Genesis 11 marks the end of the section of the book of Genesis that Walton sees as the kind of backstory to God's restoration of the world through Abraham. And so when we get to chapter 12, you've already intimated um, you know, that Abraham is the sort of the renewal of all things. You know, um, Am I right that we can detect a different kind of literature from Genesis 12? different kinds of patterns. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think that it, even though it still uses narrative, um, it's moved to a different level because now it's dealing with how God chose to establish order instead of in the cosmos through creation in Genesis 1, now in society uh, through trying to reestablish relationship, covenant, and reestablish presence, tabernacle, temple. And so the covenant is driving toward this idea of God on his own terms reestablishing relationship and presence. So would you be comfortable thinking of Genesis 1 to 11 as the preamble or the prehistory even? And from Genesis 12, it is more like historical narrative. Yes. Mm -hmm. Again, they... The term historical narrative always worries me a little bit. It is narrative, certainly. That's a style you know, of, of writing. Um, but the minute we use the word historical, we've got our own baggage of what constitutes history, how important history is, what are the conventions, what are the aims, etc. And none of those are like the ancient world. No, indeed. But do you feel we can detect more concreteness of historical memory and culture? 
Yes. From, it's, from chapter 12. Uh, again, things like Genesis 1 through 11, even though they talk about events that they would suggest really happened, uh, still they're framed with different ideas in mind. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. Uh, Jesus himself in the Gospels referred to the flood of Genesis and to Noah himself. And some of my friends have pointed out over the years that this is pretty good evidence that Jesus himself believed the story in Genesis was literal, a concrete account of historical events. I'm not so sure. And it's also worth noting the meaning that Jesus attaches to the flood. It isn't exactly the traditional story of punishment. This passage of teaching I'm referring to uh, comes from the source behind the Gospels known as Q. Now, I've mentioned this many times before on the pod. Uh, Q is just the abbreviation of the German word queller, meaning source. And it refers to the material that both Luke's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel have in common with each other. Most experts, for reasons I won't bother going into here, are pretty confident that Matthew and Luke didn't copy each other's material in writing their Gospels. So the best explanation of this shared material, this stuff they have in common, is that they're both using an earlier source. Q is just a collection of Jesus' teachings that was circulating before the Gospels were written. Most scholars date it around the year 50, so it's just like 20 years after Jesus. That's pretty good in ancient history terms. Anyway, I'm getting distracted by history. Uh, Here is the saying of Jesus I'm referring to. I'm going to quote the version in Matthew's Gospel. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. He's referring to his return. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. That's uh, Matthew 24, if you want to read it in context. Now, some of my mates point out that Jesus refers to Noah and the flood in a very matter-of-fact way. Uh, This means, so they reckon, that even if the story in Genesis has the flavour of a literary theological story, Jesus' own reference to the story means that we have to read it concretely. I'm not so sure. Let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that Jesus knew the story to be closer to a parable than to a historical record. How would he have differentiated that in his reference to it in the Gospels? Would he have said, just as that parable of Noah entering the ark, etc.? I doubt it. Um, You would refer to a famous story that was a parable in exactly the same way you'd refer to a story that was factual history. A bit like the way I might say, I love my darling Buff just as Romeo loved Juliet. There's no reason for me to say, 
just as the fictional character in Shakespeare's play Romeo loved the other fictional character in the play Juliet, you know? It just doesn't make sense. A literary reference just stands on its own. So I reckon there's just no way of telling what exactly Jesus thought of the status of the flood story from a literary reference he makes to it in the Gospels. There are other examples of this kind of literary illusion where it's clear the biblical author makes a literary reference rather than a historical one. So Jude 14 is an obvious example. Go check that out. So I'm pretty confident that what I'm saying is at least a plausible approach to the story. Jesus is just referring to a well-known story and making his own theological point about it. Literary references can be loose in order to make the point. The other example is where Jesus refers to Jonah being, quote, three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. And then Jesus says, in the same way, I will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. He's referring to his burial. But here's the thing, Jesus certainly wasn't in the tomb for three days and three nights. He wasn't even buried for 48 hours. And that took just two nights. Friday night, Saturday night. So where's the third night? But this isn't a mistake on the part of Jesus or on the part of the gospel writers. After all, they went on to tell the story of Jesus being in the tomb for less than three days, three nights, right? Um, It's just that a literary illusion like this doesn't have to be precise. It's close enough to say that Jesus' death, burial and resurrection has the same meaning as the story of Jonah which, by the way, was all about saving the people of Nineveh. But that's to get beyond what I want to say here. The other interesting thing is that Jesus happily tells actual parables in the manner of historical narration. Um, Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Um, There's no reference to it as a parable. It's not introduced as a parable. Um, Jesus simply starts telling the story. He says, a man was traveling on the road to Jericho and was attacked and so on. Now, I suppose someone could then say, well, that means this particular story is a factual story, not a parable. But it seems much better to interpret it as a parable, since the key point Jesus makes is theological and moral rather than historical. Literary references work in a similar way. Now, to be clear, I do actually think there was a catastrophic prehistorical flood, which different ancient Near Eastern cultures told in different ways, and which the Old Testament references in a highly figurative way in order to make a theological point about God's great restoration of all things. So I just don't think the fact that Jesus refers to the flood and Noah necessarily commits us to reading the Genesis story in a concrete historical way. And I understand some people disagree with me, and that's cool. The only other thing worth noting is the way Jesus uses the flood story. Whether or not we think his reference is a literal reference rather than just a literary reference, I find it interesting that Jesus is only interested in one particular point. People were just getting on with their lives when the flood came. But hopefully those listening to Jesus will learn that lesson and be prepared for the day Jesus comes to restore all things. His own punchline to the story is, quote, 
keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. However you read the story of the flood, this particular teaching of Jesus reminds us not to be simply eating and drinking our way through life, oblivious to ultimate realities. You can press play now. In a nutshell, um, what message would an informed ancient reader, so let's leave the modern world apart, uh, have got from the Bible's flood story? Well, basically, if they're reading it in the context of Genesis 1 through 11, you know, not just a flood story, because yes, yes. we don't have just a flood mm-hmm, story. Yeah. We've got the context of Genesis 1 through 11. And so they would see it in this whole sequence that humans had been created to partner with God as order bringers but they chose to pursue their own path for their own benefit. And therefore, rather than bring order, they brought corruption and violence. And therefore that uh, God is pushing the reset button uh, to reestablish order. So they would have seen it as having to do with order, not as having to do with crime and punishment. Um, God is going to maintain order. And he let people, he gave people a long leash and look what happened. Mm. You know, they ate the neighbor's roses, you know, whatever. <laughs> so that, so, okay. So do over, you know, we're going to start again uh, and uh, recognize then how this uh, can unfold in a different way. That's the soundscape from the flood scene in the 1928 Noah's Ark film, which was actually part silent, part talky. It was reported that three actors drowned and one was seriously injured while making the torrential scene, which used huge volumes of water. As a result, the film is apparently responsible for stricter safety regulations on stunt scenes. That's what The Guardian reports. Anyway, we haven't been able to verify it, so check out the links in the show notes. Of course, there was no safety for those who experienced the original flood, whenever it was, however widespread it was. But if John Walton is right, it'd be a mistake to dwell on the idea that God wiped out who knows how many people in a big flood. I mean, it of course raises the age-old question of natural suffering, so check out episode 67 for our recent discussion of that. My point is, Walton is saying that really the Bible's flood story is just taking a universal tradition from the ancient Near East and then recasting it for theological purposes. And at the heart of that theology is God's renewal of all things. The story is not so much about an end, it's about a beginning. And Russell Crowe, a.k.a. the 2014 Noah, agrees with me. That's the end of everything. Beginning. Beginning of everything. So I'm going to now, uh, with my final question, sort of draw you out of the ancient world, your, your, your happy place. Um, <laughs> into our modern context and I'd love for you to sort of reflect if you can on the messages you reckon a modern reader should 
uh, be able to pick up from the flood story? And, uh, and if you can, do it in two parts. Can you tell me what you reckon a believer should pick up? And what do you think our sceptical, doubting friends? Well, I think that a believer should pick up an understanding of the ways that God has pursued his plans and purposes. I mean, that's, to me, what the Bible is about. That's what that's what the Bible's informing us about. And therefore, as we read these narratives, we're supposed to understand how God has pursued these plans and purposes. And we see the flood in that context as an aberration that comes about, an aberration on the human part, uh, that has come about um, just when we pursued our own desires in our own ways. And so a believer should see it that way rather than, I might say, as an opportunity for an apologist to prove the Bible true. Um, I, I don't think that that has a lot of currency to make it work, because the Bible's not trying to give us what we need to reconstruct an event. Uh, it's giving us what we need to understand the theological movement here. So despite this beautiful arc with animals all over it sitting here <laughs> on your desk, um, I, I'll put a photo on the website so that people can see it. You, you don't think we should be uh, you know, running around spending archaeological dollars trying to find the ark? No, I, I don't think that we should. Um, and I don't think we should be trying to, uh, to do geology and all of that to try to uh, prove uh, the the nature of the flood. I don't think that we should be um, trying to let the Bible's truth rest on our ability to reconstruct it. Um, so yeah. And what about for the skeptic? What what message uh, do you do you reckon is um, well found there? Yeah. Hopefully, this approach makes this. Uh, it it kind of takes it away as ammunition to the skeptic um, because the things that a skeptic would say, oh, that never happened or that couldn't possibly happen or there's no evidence for that, all of that is diffused uh, because we don't have to prove those things happened. Uh, it's the theological message that's important and the skeptic then would have to engage the theological message and that's a little harder to say that's not true. So uh, the details really can't be used to cast doubt on the Bible, um, but a skeptic should be able to recognize that when human tyrants and autocrats seize order for themselves and seek to exploit it for their own benefits, the results are typically undesirable. That's fairly provable. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, welcome to our world. But in that sense, you know, when you talk about the corruption and violence of the ancient world, yes, that's, that's it. And then what does turning to the wisdom of God do for us in that context? Well, turning to the wisdom of God involves accepting the idea that God is the one who is initiating, inaugurating these plans and purposes and carrying them out. Uh, and the fact that we often don't see them actually coming about is not because we've got got an ignorant God or an incapable God or anything of that sort. It's rather because he keeps giving us enough leash with the idea that we can, we can do better. John Wilson, thank you so much.
We are well and truly into the swing of season seven now, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. If you are, perhaps you'd like to become an Undeceptions Plus subscriber. For as little as $5 Aussie per month, you can get access to a bunch of extras, including full uncut interviews with some of our guests, special extended episodes, and an invitation to our exclusive Facebook community, where you get a glimpse of how we put the show together. Just head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to join. And if you really like us, but don't need any of those extras, could I ask you to consider just donating? We do need your support. This is a costly show and we want to make it better. Head to undeceptions.com and click the donate button. I really appreciate it. Meanwhile, Laurel Moffat and her wonderful Small Wonders podcast is on a season break right now, but it's a great chance to catch up on the episodes you might have missed. It's the best and most beautiful 15 minutes you'll spend today. You can get it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next episode on Undeceptions, we're talking about the faith that takes the prize today for the world's most lovable religion, the nice guy on the religious block, Buddhism. See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Hadley, though perhaps not after today. Editing by Richard Hamwe, social media by Sophie Hawkshaw, administration by Lindy Leveston. Siobhan McGuinness is our librarian. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of undeceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast. <laughs>